The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by Blue Bottle. The new Blue Bottle at Home service delivers freshly roasted coffee or espresso right to your doorstep. Subscribe now and your first bag of coffee is free. Go to bluebottlecoffee.com slash political and use the promo code SLATE. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash political and the promo code SLATE. And by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, starting February 8th, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. And welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 6, 2015, the Vaxxers, Taxers, and Just the Faxers edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John that Dickerson. That was so got, that got was a nice really, smile from yeah. John Dickerson over there. This week, we'll talk about the vaccine panic, an occasion for aggrieved moral smugness from everybody. Then President Obama drops his budget on Congress. John Dickerson will tell us what it means. Also, Brian Williams, the news anchor with a capital N. Eats crow when it turns out he made up slash embellished slash something, a story about being shot down in a helicopter in Iraq. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we had the worst decision in sports history in the Super Bowl. So we're going to decide what is the worst decision of any sort in world history, in American history. John Dickerson, as you hear, is here. John is from uh, Slate and CBS News. Hello, John. How are you? Hi, David. I'm doing fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Good. I'm good. Emily Bazelon is not here. Her helicopter was shot down over Beinecke Library, but she is okay. She's fine. But she, she she had a late emergency or something, late something. She couldn't make the show, but that doesn't matter because instead we have Annie Lowry of New York Magazine. Hello, Annie. Thanks for having me. Was your uh, Humvee hit by an IED on the way over here? But I somehow made it, miraculously. In the convoy, right. one of the Humvees in the convoy was hit? <laughs> it was very dramatic, Shit. coming under... The Connecticut Avenue underpass. Um, it's good to have you. What what is your, your? I always forget what your title is. I'm a contributing editor, but I'm just I'm a, I'm a writer. I now have a, a silly frou frou title, which I guess means you know I don't know what that means, but yeah, I just write things. <laughs> um, what were you? I've never understood the contributing editor title, like because people never edit, right? Yeah, they, 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 it's, it's almost it's definitional. A contributing editor ridiculous. does not edit. Yes. Yeah. So, but why not be a contributing writer? I don't mean I, I don't. Sorry, I directed that at you. No, as but lesson. it's just like all of the staff writers I think are contributing editors, yeah. but none of us edit. Like, I, are you I, not I wonder on if staff? it's a vestige. No, you know I what am. It, I wonder if it's a vestige of old guild <laughs> thing. If, if like, because it at time it used to be whatever slot you were in really mattered in terms of like what you could be paid, and because of all the rules with the with the union, and so there was a lot of like torquing your title to fit you into a slot. So I don't know whether that's yeah. part of it. I think I'll... we should get like full-on corporate titles. Like, yes, I am the... senior vice president. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> corporate yes. communication. Regional <laughs> sales manager yeah. for the Northwest region. Junior yeah. administration officer. Right. Yeah. I was yeah. once a senior editor in a job, and I was senior to no one and edited nothing. So yeah. that, I always felt that was a, that was the perfect Where was title. that? I think it's City Paper. My oh. first, I think that was my title at City Paper was senior editor. Okay. It's a good I title. Believe. I can't. I, I mean, or it might have. It might have been a slate title. I just. Remember, I've always kept that in my head. As, this is my Brian Williams moment. Actually, <laughs> yes. I've never been actually, a senior editor. Yes, so, you unfortunately, never, you actually you are a Maytag repairman. You're not even in journalism. Um, all right, let's go to the show. The measles outbreak that popped up in Disneyland has been spreading. It's now in a bunch of states. I think seven states, maybe in Mexico as well. It has also prompted a furious debate about how mandatory vaccination should be. There's been a kind of weird political array, a weird political distribution on this. You have lefty, holistic progressives who are all naturopathic, worrying about the effect of vaccinations on their kids and and not vaccinating their kids for those reasons. You have a libertarian-leaning people who think of it as a form of government intrusion. There should be parental choice. You have at least two 
uh, Republican presidential contenders, Chris Christie and Rand Paul, saying and probably then immediately regretting things about how vaccination shouldn't be mandatory. John is going to explore that in a second. And then there's been an interesting debate that's broken out about what is the best way to persuade people who are skeptical of vaccinations to vaccinate their kids anyway. Annie, is this vaccination obsession, is this a real issue or is this just an occasion for everyone to be morally outraged? It's a real issue, absolutely. One thing that I think is really interesting is there's a debate among academics right now how much uh, turning down vaccines, vaccine denialism is actually increasing, or whether there's just more media attention to it and that's increasing the numbers. It remains the case that the vast majority of parents choose to vaccinate their children, and that the parents who don't vaccinate their kids are pretty idiosyncratic. As you mentioned, there's some on the left, there's some on the right. There's a lot that are just kind of, they're low income, or they're disorganized, or they just don't get to it. So it's a really fascinating subject. But I think that perhaps the outrage is is a good thing if it reminds people that they need to be vaccinating their kids, that all of the scientific evidence is that this is perfectly safe. And in in, in fact, you know, it's, it's something that you have something of a moral obligation to do to help with herd immunity. John, why do you think it was that that Christie and Paul felt the need to jump into this and in the way that they did? Yeah, we found the elusive Christie Paul issue axis because those two have been kind of sniping and uh, fish slapping each other for the last, uh, I don't know, year or so over basically anything. And here they find themselves on the same page. I think it's actually less with Christie. It's less ideology and more. It was in opposition to what President Obama has said. And so that's always a safe default space to be in, which is the president said people need to get vaccinated. And so Chris Christie said, I vaccinate my kids, but there should be some element of choice. It was less that he was taking a big stand with the anti-vaxxers and more that he was just trying to push back against the president. About 10 minutes later, he realized that he pushing being on the opposite side of the president put him in a weird space that he didn't want to be in. So then his office issued a clarification saying everybody should get their vaccinations. But what was particularly rich for Christie was, of course, that he'd had two big public health moments. And one was when he told the people who were not evacuating during Sandy that they were being stupid and selfish. And then he also quarantined the, the uh, nurse. Um, I think Casey Hickox was her name. Because, you know, she had been in a portion of Africa where there might have been Ebola. When you think about the contagion from measles, it's extraordinary to read about. So Ebola, you have to have, like, it's hard to transmit it. With the measles, it can be airborne. It stays airborne after you've left the room. It's, like, so much more contagious. And so the notion that he was sort of being like, well, there should be an element of choice relative to what he'd said before was um, amazing. Now, he backtracked. Paul doubled down. At first, he said, you should have vaccinations, but I didn't like the fact that they gave my kids a bunch of them all at the same time. And then later, he said that he had heard lots of stories from people whose children were perfectly normal, got vaccinated, and then ended up with severe mental problems. So, And this is important because he tried to walk that back later by claiming he said something different, which is totally not true. And what's interesting about that is as a doctor, he was essentially validating the skepticism about the relationship between autism and vaccines. And that's a problem for him, not just on vaccines, but on. So do you think these are do you think it's problematic for Paul that he's done this or is being on the wrong? Because it it does seem clear like that. Paul is absolutely on the wrong side of this issue, morally, like scientifically, in every sense. But does it hurt him politically? I think it – well, when Ben Carson, the other doctor in the race, came out and said, this is crazy, everybody should get their vaccinations. And and so that made him look – Paul look a little bit embarrassing for a moment. I think the problem here has nothing to do with vaccines in terms of politics. The political problem for Paul is the late-night dorm room theory of everything, which is he exaggerates a lot. He has a lot of like – anecdotal riffs like this. Um, He, and when I was with him in New Hampshire a couple of weeks ago, he said, there is literally no war in Washington that there isn't a majority consensus to support, which is just like not true even about the big wars, let alone the, you know, 100 wars that are going on that we don't even pay any attention to. It's just the way he riffs. And when you pile up over time, this kind of sloppiness, I think you can run into a situation where you just disqualify yourself. I want to go to this. Actually, you're, the thing you just said of Ben Carson, I don't. I didn't see exactly what his quote is. But what Ben Car- if Ben Carson said everyone should get their vaccines, that is not at all the same thing as saying everyone must get vaccines. That that this is a government, this is a pu- this is a public health obligation, and you must do it. Not everyone should get your vaccine. Still entertains the idea that there's a parental choice in it, which I think I certainly don't think there should be. 
But you don't think there should be... Do you be... think they should be compulsory? Yeah. yeah. But Vaccinations in... are compulsory. If you choose not to vaccinate your child, your child cannot go to school. Right. Your child, right. Your child cannot go to playgrounds. Yeah, well, that's... Can't go a... to amusement parks. I think that's what Carson I think that's the saying. element of... Yeah, I think that's well, the but... appropriate element of choice. You don't want to vaccinate your kid, and not because the kid has a, a medical issue. Fine. But you don't get access to the same public services that all of these other kids are enjoying with their, with their herd immunity to keep uh, the people who need to be safe safe. I totally agree. Right, with but you. isn't that? I, I and, think there's. And an, that's what is there no enforcement mechanism? Well, do we believe it? In, in Mississippi has this law. Where there's no. You must, I guess, vaccinate your child. I suppose you don't get arrested if you don't. Right. Vaccinate well, your that's child. the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, but you can't participate. You can't. I think what Ben Carson was talking about is keeping in place the public health regimen that exists, which is you can't go to public school unless you've gotten a certain set of shots. You know, there are gates that are put up, and you can't pass through those gates unless. Mm-hmm. You've Although, gotten. but a state so, like California does allow. A certain amount of like religious exemption, even though that seems to be a preposterous or moral choice exemption, that seems like it shouldn't be permitted. Right, and a lot of town, cities, states are now looking at precisely these exemptions where people would claim, "Well, I don't believe in these, and therefore I'm not going to get them." And then all of a sudden, you have a ton of kids with right. pertussis or with measles or something. I wonder. Else. I mean, do, has anyone proposed? I mean, you hear on the right, in particular, this idea of charging people who abet abortions, or or even there was a woman this week who. Who did a self-abortion and, or may have done a self-abortion and killed her baby and uh, killed a fetus, and was ch- convicted of this? Like, should people, if your child has not been vaccinated and is the cause of a an outbreak, should you be criminally liable? How is, do you know if they're? Well, I guess you can. Could you I think, think, can you, I think yeah. this is probably traceable. Yeah, there were all probably. those cases, right? With um, if you can tra- assuming you could trace it, right? Weren't there all those cases with folks knowingly giving people AIDS? I, I wonder if there isn't some legal precedent for this, but I wonder how knowing it has to be, right? The kid has no obligation to get his or herself vaccinated, right? The obligation right. is on the parent. But I'd be really interested to know if, if lawsuits end up becoming part of this and whether that actually helps or hurts. Because I think what's really interesting is the more attention that's paid to this issue, the more you think that not vaccinating your kids is maybe a mainstream thing. Maybe I should think about doing that as opposed to just, you know, what if there were a nurse on the first day of kindergarten or whenever it is and they're right. just, you know, it's right. It's a, That's a, really it's a public health point. thing, and they just right. vaccinate the kid unless the parent has a real right. concern or the kid has a medical issue. Well, this is, a, this is an interesting question about how you f- persuade people. So right. there are these people who are skeptical. Do you persuade them by shaming them? Do you persuade them by reasoning with them? Do you not try to persuade them but simply institute a regimen, as, as Mississippi did, where you just have to do it? Like, you do, there's not a... To me, like that seems to me the answer. The answer is not like let's have a discussion about it. Let's get the people we need to persuade are legislators who just need to pass laws that say this is absolutely mandatory and and then people end up doing it because it's it's a pain not to. I would love to know, though, if you had some sort of public health campaign that says if you are not getting vaccinated, these are the people you are endangering. Infants under three months, people undergoing chemotherapy, people with immunosuppressed conditions and the very elderly. So, like, think about that. You know, I, I do think that there are ways to compel people. But ultimately, I agree with you that you just need to make it compulsory and you need to make it way easier, way easier and way cheaper for people to do it in the case that they're paying. And is it wor- has it gotten worse and how much more has it gotten worse? Obviously, there's all this political science literature about the fact that it, when you push people in argument, you only make them cling to their positions. Right. Right. And the more data you uh, pile on them, the more entrenched they become and stay. Is that worse as a condition than it used to be? And or is there a secondary thing that exists, which is that we now have on both the left and the right, but more on the right, news organizations that exist to do two things. One, tell you what you already know and to breed suspicion about any other information that comes from anywhere else. So if you are constantly now suspicious of information, and we'll get into this in our third topic, but if you're constantly suspicious of information, then all new information, if it's not coming from exactly the right source, right. is suspect. Right. And not only suspicious of information from other sources, but in particular suspicious of information from government Official authorities. Sources. Right. Right. Do you, I mean, Annie, going to your original – because I think you started to ask this. Have you looked at the numbers? Is there actual evidence that, in fact, there is a rise in – suspicion of vaccines? The answer is kind of yes and no. There certainly seems like there are communities where this is on the rise, so very famously in Los Angeles and also in San Francisco. But looking at the broad population, no, it's still true that almost everybody gets their kids vaccinated and that there's just been disproportionate media attention. There's also one vaccine that didn't work as well as it was supposed to, and that ended up leading to a rash of cases. And I think that people thought that that was because people chose not to vaccinate. And I'm forgetting, I can't remember whether it was measles or pertussis 
this was a couple of years ago, but it turned out that it was actually just because the vaccine hadn't worked quite as well as it was supposed to. But, you know, to John's point, one thing that I think is really interesting is, you know, we're in this climate in which any given issue, even without a given political slant, immediately becomes politicized. So we've had this kind of weird thing where it was, it looked for a second like vaccines might become political. My other sort of favorite example of this is the Obamas decide they like a Beyonce and then Mike Huckabee is like Beyonce is the devil and, you know, says that she's corrupting the youth despite her being, you know, a married and very successful and by all accounts, very personally conservative woman. And I think that that is is one of my fears with this is that this somehow becomes a political thing that if you are like a super crunchy green person, you're not a vaccines person anymore. Or if you are libertarian, you're all of a sudden not a vaccines person anymore. And I think that that would be unbelievably, you know, that would be horrible. That would be dangerous. Yeah. That, that, that's my fear. <laughs> that is, no, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, do, do, one of the theories that I saw floated, which as a as an occasional communitarian, I really liked, but I don't I don't know whether the person who was making it actually supported it, was that one reason why this is an issue is that there is in fact a decline in the idea of public, like that that there isn't a sense of collective responsibility. You know, people are selfish essentially, and as we've sort of what you're talking about, as we've kind of divided up politically, people. And, and as the right has has been on this rampage against collectivism in general, there's a loss of sense of collective responsibility for others. That you that the reason to vaccinate is actually part of the reason to vaccinate is to protect your own loved ones. The other reason to vaccinate is to protect everybody. You know, so have we lost that protect everybody component of the world or not? Well, it's weird if we're sorting to live with like minded and people who are like us. Then you would imagine, or you could imagine, that in a situation like this, you're the people you would be harming are not the other. They're the you. And so you would, could imagine That's a way true. in which that yeah. makes you, it would make you more. And then there are lots of communities that rally, you know, because they're all sort of the same. And you, I don't know. I don't know what, what, how that would – whether the, the overall sort of bowling alone problem ha- relates to this. All right. Are you guys fully vaccinated? Yeah. As far as I can tell. Yeah. Although, weirdly, I've gotten pertussis twice, idiosyncratically, apparently, and it's really, really unpleasant. And I got it both times as, like, a very healthy adult, and I felt very grateful for that. Pertussis whooping cough or something? Yeah, because it was awful when it happened. And it's just, like, you know, thank goodness and thank goodness. (laughs) This whole thing makes me very nervous. Did you infect other people? No, I didn't. Not to my knowledge, (laughs) at least, uh, because I think everybody else around me should have been been fine. But Okay. GapFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. Trips to the post office are never convenient. Why not get postage right from your desk with Stamps.com? Stamps.com even gives you special discounts you can't get at the post office, including first-class priority mail, Express International, and other discounts. You'll never pay full price for postage again. How Stamps.com works is this. You use your own computer and printer. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then you just hand your mail to the mail carrier, or you can drop it in a mailbox. It is that easy. So it's no wonder that over half a million small businesses are already using Stamps.com. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST and get a special offer. No risk trial and up to $110 in bonus goodies, a free digital scale, and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. President Obama delivered a budget to Congress this week. It wouldn't balance the budget over 10 years. It would bring the deficit down a bit, maybe expand infrastructure spending, tax uh, cash that companies are holding overseas, change estate taxes to get some more money from the super rich there, tax financial institutions, tax credits for second incomes for for families, I think, for two-income families, community college funding for President Obama's community college for all for free plan, defense spending on terrible weapon systems. It would bust the sequester. It's really, um, Annie, just like, what is the point of this thing? It has no chance. Like, why does it exist? What is its purpose? What do you do with it? It's going nowhere. And uh, they've put out many of these. This is sort of a continuance of a theme. It's not radically different. What kind of always amazes me uh, when they put out these budgets is why they don't just sort of shoot the moon and say, okay, if we actually were, you know, kings for a day, here is how we would make every change to every program that we wanted to uh, radically overhaul the tax system, whatever other things you could think of that they would probably do in some sort of a blue sky world. But no, nobody, nobody cares 
I mean, this this kind of came and went. And I think that the Obama administration knew it. But I think that this is, you know, very much a messaging document that is setting out again Democrats and the White House as the party of the middle class, the party that is going to try to do whatever they can to offset the really powerful economic forces that continue to just batter average families. But it just, you know, it came and went really fast. I don't think it, it caused much of a stir in Washington. You had, you know, some press releases bashing it and then everybody moved on. Uh, and and that's that's what happens when you have a Republican Congress. I wonder if, it, if it's going nowhere less fast than in the past. So there, <laughs> these things are always dead on arrival, right? So they yeah. have been for a long time. Yep. But in this case, when you because you have Republicans in control of both houses and they're going to have to put forward their own budget and their own appropriations bills, in the past, when everything broke down in the budgeting process, the Democrats were in part partially to blame. Now, the Republicans are going to have a document they have to actually – they're going to have to pass these bills. And they say they're going to do them in, as 14 individual appropriations bills. The president can't veto the budget. So the appropriations bill is where the action's at. They're not going to rope a bunch of them together. They're going to pass them individually. And so now you have the president's vision against the Republican vision in an actual veto clash where it's going to be kind of – two visions more starkly contrasted than in the previous years when you had like a House version and then you had the Democrats not doing anything and it was all kind of messy. So this is as dead on arrival, but at least as a conversational document or even negotiating document, you know, if the president says, I want to repatriate some foreign income at 14 percent or whatever his lower rate is to pay for infrastructure – that's a negotiating debate. And the, and the Republicans can say, well, no, we want to use that repatriation money as a part of fundamental tax reform. And now you have a debate. Like, are the benefits of fixing the rates better or are, is paying for infrastructure better? And, like, it just seems like at least in that regard, it's going to be a little bit helpful, even though everything Andy said was so right. Is there a Venn diagram where anything intersects? I mean, you just gave one well, example. Well, corporate stuff. The tra- Notionally, trade, although the president has a bunch of trade assistance money in there to buy off Democrats for the trade agreements. So they're nominally, there's there's an intersection on trade, but they don't. Republicans don't like trade assistance, I guess, on the tax stuff. On infrastructure, they say they're for it. So they're, they're not terribly far apart on the corporate tax stuff, but I think it would be such a heavy lift to do a tax bill that would, you know, placate everybody that I think that won't happen. One place where I think it's kind of interesting to think is President Obama is proposing some tax cuts for a lot of families. Is there some chance that the Republicans would say, hey, we'll, we'll cut taxes? We love cutting taxes. <laughs> There's the, the, the EITC childless. But the problem with the provisions is that Republicans want to do them as a part of a big tax thing, not as little rifle shots. So, mm-hmm. And interestingly, there's actually some tax provisions in there that they came out against. So one of these provisions they say would be unfair to stay-at-home parents. That was that that provision that would give money for child care to certain families. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that there's much of an upshot there, actually. Is- what are the tripwires that we face? So, so what, when do, when is the government going to shut down again? When is the debt ceiling going to go into crisis again? Are those going to happen? First of all, those are floating numbers. I mean, those are because the it depends on the receipts that come in. But mm-hmm. I think we've got well, the first one is the funding of Homeland Security, right? Which is the end of February. Right. Yeah, soon. and leads to the interesting question of when they shut down the Department of Homeland Security, <laughs> who is going to notice and who is going to care? Because most of those employees have to keep working right. because they are they are what's the word essential employees. Um, but they'll have to go without. Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing, but it just strikes me as ridiculous that these people are going to have to work without pay. Yeah, and it's also Republicans know and keep saying how they're going to shut the government down. So I think they're going to find a way around. I mean, obviously, Republican leaders are caught between their constituents who want to punish the president for what they call executive amnesty, and they're caught between the fact that they should rack up a few accomplishments before they start shutting things down or breaking stuff up. And and so it's a it's a problem for Republicans. I what will be really fascinating is how they put they've promised to put out a budget that will balance the budget in 10 years. If you do that, there's not much left on the discretionary side to cut. So that means you're talking Social Security, Medicare, and you can't just. Are they notion- just going to have these fa- fantasies? They're always going to have. Well, here's the, the thing. Didn't, but they, here's didn't the thing. they get rid of like the head of the CBO just no. so they could push through their? Well, fantasies? but here's the problem. Here's here's where it fell apart in the past in the House when they did this. Is that you could they're they're no longer fantasies because the budget document then gives instructions to the appropriators, and the appropriators have to hit those targets. And the appropriators sit down and they go, wait, we can't possibly do the stuff we want to do with these little numbers. And so there was the the famous, um, what was it, transportation, housing, and urban development, the THUD bill, remember the, the appropriations bill that in the House, it was so, the cuts were so draconian and so impossible to do, Republican, the Republicans just totally revolted and said, we can't, we're not going to pass this. So 
if they're going to try and make something balanced in 10 years, then that means it's going to be hard to pass these but bills. Are, and then you got to get them uh, reconcile it with the Senate. It's but aren't they just going to do this the bogus dynamic scoring and just say, oh, look, assume, it's magic. We are going to magic it. Isn't that the plan? Well, that can only take them right. so far. The CBO, even if instructed, uh, as it has been instructed to use dynamic scoring, it can't quite just make things up. They do plug these things into computers and have something spit out the other side. You know, there was this this belief that um, they could have just completely undercut the CBO and uh, the Congressional Budget Office's ability to do this in half and, you know, just installed somebody who they wanted in there. And that hasn't quite happened. I think that the CBO is going to remain a check on the actual scoring, even if they have sort of changed how it operates a little bit. The next steps, John, are what? So, so they'll get they'll have to pass Homeland Security, and then when? And then the, when are the next House? Issues? Then the Republicans will have to put forward their budget in April. So we're basically in holding until then, and in between now and then, Republicans are going to try and do some stuff to rack up some accomplishment or some sense of proceeding in a, in a normal fashion. So that when you get into the big budget debates, which is going to be messy, they got to start doing stuff that. Like looks like they can run the place because the budget process is going to be messy and will offer opportunities for it to look like they can't run the place. And so they got to get some some things done before that. There are two other things that are worth looking at that are interesting is one, the talk of a tax, uh, a gas tax to pay for some of this infrastructure stuff, just like is interesting um, reverberation of low gas prices and whether there's an actual bipartisan support for gas taxes increase, a gas tax increase. The other thing is the change in the capital gains treatment of estate taxes. The White House argues that when you die, the basis for your asset gets counted, not at when you bought it, but when, when you died. And so the argument here is, the White House argument is, that this creates all kinds of unproductive investments, that, you, that families st- sock away their wealth, and it just sits there not being productive in the economy. And so, so they argue, argue it on sort of economic grounds, but then also on fairness grounds, that a middle-class family that um, has to face capital gains because they convert stock to, say, pay their kids to, co- pay to send their kids to college has to deal with a basis at the purchase price, the original purchase price. But a wealthy family that has their money passed from generation to generation gets this step up in in the basis. Um, And so that on fairness grounds, this should be changed. How much they push on that is interesting because it gets us to, you know, a kind of big argument about the middle class and who are you for. And that's part of what the president was trying to put forward in this in this budget is not only say I'm for the middle class, but who are those guys for? And if that fight happens, it's very well could happen around this question of the estate tax. Annie, just like you have to leave me with some form of reassurance. So much <laughs> of 2010, 11 and 12, I spent just in a state of constant frustration. I couldn't st- like the repeated budget crises. It was horrible. Please tell me that is not what this year is going to be. I do think that it comes down to a matter of will, but I don't think that the Republicans have shown a ton of appetite for destruction like they did in the past. My guess is that they're going to go ahead and just tuck an increase into the debt ceiling to something or another. Because at this point, Barack Obama is leaving. He's running out of office. They're focusing on other things. They want to beat up on Hillary. I, I think that they might have slightly moved on also, but we'll see. They can always surprise us. <laughs> Thank you. That was slightly reassuring. <laughs> Best I could do. The GabFest is also sponsored this week by Blue Bottle. Blue Bottle is a, an Oakland, California-based specialty coffee roaster dedicated to getting the most delicious coffee to anyone who asks for it. In September, they launched Blue Bottle at Home, a digital subscription service that gets freshly roasted coffee to your doorstep really soon. Blue Bottle at Home works like this. If you don't live near good coffee, with Blue Bottle at Home, you can choose any coffee you'd like to subscribe to, drip coffee blends, espresso blends, or single origins. Set your amount and your cadence. Say, for example, a 12-ounce bag every week. The amounts are 6, 12, 24, and 36 ounces. From there, you can kick back, wait for your coffee to arrive. And once your coffee has arrived, you can begin brewing. And Blue Bottle has a crew of coffee professionals one click or phone call away, eager to answer all questions you might have. Like half and half or whole milk. Would they answer that, or is that a matter of taste? I, I think it would it be, and also would it be like, what temperature do I? That would be good do to these, know. You know, grinds that, at, I'm and sure like when, how much contact yeah. should there be with the water and the grinds? That is, those are good questions. Those are, you know, it, I've I've often wanted to know what kind of questions that people get for the turkeys that you um, can buy that have like a one eight hundred right. number on right. Thanksgiving. Like what right. kind of? I'm sure somebody's compiled those. Like read it. There's some readers di- digest like little um, insert about like funny questions that have been asked. 
well, I'm, we could ask the Blue Bottle crew to tell us what their good questions are. Anyway, there's a special offer for GapFest listeners. Go to bluebottlecoffee.com slash political. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash political. Promo code SLATE. Subscribe there, and your first bag of coffee is on Blue Bottle. Hashtag Brian Williams memories. Brian Williams riding with O.J. Simpson. Brian Williams reporting from the moon. Brian Williams saving Private Ryan. The much beloved, admired, respected NBC news anchor turns out to have been telling an untrue, self-glamorizing story about his own war reporting. He was in Iraq in 2003, and he has said over the course of these last 11 years with increasing inaccuracy, he has told a story of being in a helicopter that was forced down because of enemy fire. This story has embellished. It turns out that, as we believe now, that Williams was in a helicopter. There was another helicopter that was flying perhaps as much as an hour ahead of him that he was not near at all that was, in fact, forced down because of enemy fire. Williams has, in the beginning, seemed to have told the story that he was he was not in the helicopter that was shot down, but he was nearby. And then over time, it's kind of he's gotten closer and closer and closer, and he's now inside the helicopter. In any case, now he's he's been called out on this lie and has apologized for it. We were about to sort of. This is the problem: is that he said in his remarks on the uh, air Wednesday night that it was a lapse, a tw- you know, twelve years later, which, he, as you point out, he's told the story I think thirteen or so times, and was told it not long after it originally happened. And then he said that he, I, th- I believe, on the air, he said he was in the cluster of of Chinook helicopters which is not the case. And so that's the que- the question is whether the cover up is going to be worse than the initial because he gave his remarks and the people who originally called him on it said the things you've all just said now are not true either. Right and the, and there's the Daily Caller has turned up this just absolutely damning quote from him appearing on a podcast with Alec Baldwin where he talks about how he thought he was going to die which is terrible. So Annie Look, we all have stories about our own lives. We all embellish. You all, you make it. You know, it was a, it was a bigger guy you beat up. It was a, you know, you you had more beers than you said. You know, she was hotter than you claimed. <laughs> what, what do we make of this story? Is this a lie? Is this an embellishment? Is this, you know, is it conceivably misremembering? Could he have actually misremembered this? I think it's possible that over time he came to believe the falsified version of the story that just grew and grew and grew. I think that that happens. I think that you can develop false memories. It seems also that there's some, at this point, there might be some evidence that the helicopters were, in fact, in a closer convoy than an hour away. So who knows actually what happened? I think that we'll probably, in the next couple of days, get a full accounting of, of exactly what, what went on in the incident. I have some sympathy for him, but... One one thing that I would note is that these stories are always especially terrible when they involve the military and military valor yep. <laughs> because – I, I think that so often we forget that there are actual soldiers out there who deal with this sort of stuff all the time and, and do so at great personal risk. But, you know, one of the things that Hillary got most pilloried for was that story about being shot off, coming off, shot at coming off of a plane. It turned out that it didn't at all ever happen. Nothing even close to it. I think she was supposed to be Sarajevo. Yeah, yeah. 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 Under, she said she was under fire. Under right. fire. Under fire. And then there were pictures of her like being <laughs> Which, greeted by yeah. children Which with flowers. And so I'm, I'm like a hula. I'm so sympathetic in general, but when it comes to these kinds of incidents, gosh, do you have to be careful? My favorite reaction to the Hillary news was when the Obama campaign, this was in the thick of the primary fight, and the Obama campaign held one of those fantastic press conferences, conference calls that like emerge out of nowhere when when one side is trying to seize on the the mistakes of another. And they had some military person who had served in Sarajevo saying that this disqualified her from ever being commander in chief. This one little, this one, one mistake, um, which then was amusing since he uh, named her secretary of state. (laughs) Yeah. I, I also, you know, I'm sympathetic and I also, you know, the idea that the worst thing about you becomes the most true thing about you is also something that, that I've promoted or believed really strongly in. And especially these days where everything you say is scrutinized and um but you know i i don't know i mean what what do you i think? feel like I mean, well you... I, I feel like no i feel like everybody should get a lot of leeway to screw up sort of once 
you know, or to screw just to screw up on misremembering something. But an RPG is not like. You know, yeah, this is not your well, Canadian did, boyfriend. So, yeah, this is not right. <laughs> or like, if I dated Julia Roberts, I'd remember it. You know, like it's not a, it's a big thing to get like hit by an RPG. So, right. He, but is it? But do, do so, we have any idea that this is a pattern of him doing this? Is this one? Is this one mistake, or is this twelve mistakes because he's been doing it? Repeatedly. No, I think it's one. I think it's one mistake. So I think it's so one by mistake. The, but the very the firm question, Dickerson though. standard of forgiveness doesn't this? Yeah, it should apply. It should and apply. It should apply. So I guess what I'm trying to keep in mind, though, is that this is that he's not just. Well, I guess this is what we should discuss. He's not just any old journalist. He is. He has a role, which is as the head of of an entire enterprise. And does that change the standard? I think this is funny because this is where your perspective, because you're a person who's in TV news and my perspective is different. My perspective is, why does it matter? He's not a journalist. He's somebody who literally reads the work of other people. His reporting is superficial because he has his job is to not basically not be a journalist. His job is to be a face. And therefore, who cares? Like well, his job is, in fact, just to tell stories. And, you know, if the reporting at NBC is wrong, that's problematic. But if Brian Williams is a is a is slight with the truth, eh, who cares? But you but I know that this well, is the perspective it, from inside TV news. Well, no. Well, there are also different anchors to different things. I mean, there are anchors. I'm not talking about Brian for the moment, but I mean, so the anchor I work for does a hell of a lot of reporting. So there are different kinds of w- ways that, um, you know, part of the challenge here is anytime an anchor of any stripe goes somewhere, it's to build up their reporting credentials. And so this controversy is not sort of about his role as a, a newsreader. It's about his role as a reporter because this he was there, you know, presumably to report. So that adds to one of the one of the challenges here. You know how in every family there's this story that gets retold so many times that it just takes on a life of its own and then that's how you remember. In my family there's a story about somebody drinking a gravy boat of gravy which I'm sure like I don't think it actually happened. My guess is that with him he has told this story not just 13 times but a thousand to anybody who will listen about this time that he had this really searing experience and maybe it was later on he found out that the convoy was being shot at even if it wasn't his helicopter or whatever else it was. I'm sympathetic but I think when you are presenting something as news, it's it's got to be hard to fact check your, you know, fact check your memory because it. But I, I I do it's it's somehow so much worse, right? <laughs> well, but but it's so much worse for the original reason you cited, right? Which is mm-hmm. that it's military. If it were a story, if he made up a story which was totally self deprecating mm-hmm. and had nothing to do with. I'm trying to think of what the example would be, but it has nothing to do with military. It was just like a, but it was a made-up story in which he mm-hmm. comes off as a fool. No one would, no one would care, right? Like so David Sedaris, like David yep. Sedaris, everything David Sedaris says, I think is probably like thirty percent true, right? <laughs> um, but we, you know, the stories are self-mocking. It doesn't right. really matter, and he's also transparent about it, right? That you know, it's it's fictionalized truth or whatever. So there's also a market question, which is if you advertise somebody as the most trusted newsman in America, mm-hmm. do you, is there a market problem here? Yes. Now there's a problem. Right. So there's an NBC problem. But is it a problem for society? Is that a journalistic ethics problem or just a pure business mm-hmm. thing? And it's got to be hard no, uh, for the corporate thing. executives too, because the way that he got called out on this was the folks at Stars and Stripes, right? Were like, hey, there were a lot of other people there and that is not what they remember. And that's particularly embarrassing for a news organization to get sort of, you know, publicly. And I think he's done a good job of apologizing. Um, and my guess John is... John doesn't. Uh, well, I mean, except to the extent that there's People are now saying the apology may not be – that he may be kind of still embellishing the underlying event. I I was a little surprised that he didn't just say, here's what I said. That isn't the way it happened. Mm-hmm. Done. Like, <laughs> as you know, as a fabulous myself, um, once you're on shaky ground, you can't – you got to just get back to like the one, you know, yeah. like I think therefore I am. I mean you got to like really go back to just the – Barest thing you can say, so that you don't. If for no other reason than let's assume this is benign memory uh, mixing up, then you should distrust your own memory and just say, like, "Here's what happened." I mean, I was on a flight. I thought we were hit, or I said we were hit. We weren't hit. That didn't happen. Can you guys think of stories that, of your own? I'm not going to demand that you tell them unless you want to. That you know you've exaggerated. That you know. I mean, because I know intuitive. I was trying to, before we came on, I was trying to think, like, what are the stories which I tell, which I know are not 
like absolutely dead letter true. And I, I shape them because they're convenient because it makes it a better story. I mean, Hannah, my wife, is a fantastic storyteller, and she's a fantastic storyteller in part because she is hyperbolic. Like mm-hmm. she uses elements which definitely like didn't happen or she conflates things. Like this is not in her journalism. This is in just in her like form of entertainment for other people. I should note, let me note, in her journalism, not at all, in her, just in her, her storytelling in the world. I mean, we all, we definitely do it. Like, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't do it. Yeah, and it's funny that you say that because I was thinking, the, the stuff where I feel like perhaps I've been unfair in my hyperbole or let the writing take over a little bit, it's all the light stuff, right? It's not about, I mean, I don't, I don't report from war zones, but it's not, it tends to be things where I think it's clear to the reader that, like, it, part of the story is, is entertainment, uh, if that makes sense. And again, no, you, you know, obviously I, I try to have fidelity to the truth. And, you know, I know that these are kind of squidgy concepts. And in a lot of cases, when when other reporters make errors, I feel like all journalists are like, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? Uh, I think you're automatically sympathetic to the person who, who's been caught out because it's really embarrassing. And it's part of the whole mechanism of journalism to shame people who get shit wrong. That's like part of how journalism works is that you have this sort of public opprobrium. I think it helps keep people honest. I think, but... that, I think that's exactly right. And that there, but for the grace of God, go I is very familiar feeling for me i think this is apart from that though yeah like he didn't misreport a story here yeah or he didn't like jump at a fact because it was really attractive and then led him to race i mean i I, or you know the one that i feel like is just very sympathetic to is people who do the cut and paste problem you know like where people cut and paste something and then and then now the problem is the people who claim that the people who claim that have like 700 like for reasons you're only allowed to have one of those no no i know yeah and also but they don't like i what i don't understand is why this is a different point but why if you're an adult like if you're a name and you commit that particular form of sin you're totally fine well, you, you shouldn't be, pla- be because like he- there are all these serial plagiarists yeah. who walk among us. No, Didn't Obama it- just give an interview to Fareed Zakaria? Fareed is like, you know, he's like a great journalist in some sense, but you know, there's definitely like stuff he definitely should not have done. <laughs> well, anyway, those are those are all a category of sin that are different than this, which is, I guess, why we're we're wrestling with. Yeah, it. I'm going to crawl under the table in the fetal position now, just worried about everything, everything I've you've ever, ever written, said, yeah. <laughs> like everything I've ever I feel said. Like you were on the show once, and we had a discussion about plagiarism, and where you we, because there is this, we are all haunted by the thought, like, my God, what if I've done it? What if right. I? What if I've you know ripped something and I didn't even realize it? Right. Yeah. And I think that that's good. I think that's what keeps you honest. It's a good thing, but it can also become very obsessing. When I first got to the New York Times, I would be so worried about my stories because all of a sudden it was just, there's a lot of readers and I don't know why it was that it was, it was more so than I was at Slate. But there was one night where I actually couldn't sleep because I was just so nervous that I'd mess something right. up and it turned out to be completely totally fine it was irrational but you find some place for those those fears you know anyway john do you think he gets demoted loses his job anything beyond the sort of flagellation happens? I, I don't know i mean one of the reasons this is, there is so and we should have maybe said this at the top the reason that we're talking about this is that this is a this is a big deal because there are a lot there are, i mean a lot of people who watch his program. There's this financial piece of it. NBC is having some struggles on some of their uh, er, in some areas, so this is a, a new challenge for them. And then there is also a conservative furor, which is longstanding, about the fact that the rules don't apply for the networks and that basically corrections are never, you know, put on the air. That you can just kind of get something totally wrong or mischaracterize something, and it never gets kind of cleaned up, and that they are untouchable. And so. There is a way in which people who uh, either don't like Brian Williams or don't like NBC or don't like the three traditional networks see this as a chance to like exact revenge or hold the moment up and say, look, they say that they have these standards and now they don't apply it to themselves. And the anger and the moment of this is big and it's not going to um, go away. And so I don't know how I don't know how um, uh, how NBC handles it. Um, so. All right. The GapFest has another sponsor this week. We have a three-sponsor week. We're sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, which is a new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8 p.m. on HBO, starting this Sunday, February 8th. The Jinx is filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. 
The series exposes long buried information discovered during their seven year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. And it was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. The jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind Capturing the Freedmen's, which is truly one of the greatest documentaries ever made. It's amazing if the jinx is half as good as Capturing the Freedmen's, the world is going to be a better place. Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, a fictional account of Durst's life starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. This is, looks amazing. I have a friend who's weirdly a cousin of Durst, who's always wondered about Durst. I cannot wait to see this thing. Uh, so anyway, check out The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, starting February 8th and airing Sundays at 8 o'clock only on HBO. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. When you are flying your helicopter this weekend, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about with the pilot? You'll probably be the pilot, actually. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I'll be able to do both, um, given the overflowing competence my chatter is about something called the um, History as We Lived It, which is these um, annual almanacs that the Associated Press used to put together um, that I came across. And um, if you like history, they are, they're not that easy to find. You, 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 there's some of them you can find on Amazon. You can find some on eBay. They seem to have run from like 1960 to maybe 77. I can't quite get a, put my finger on it. But the first thing is they're just a joy to just open and look at because they – you know, in our news world today now where basically constantly there is a blaring of breaking news when it's not breaking at all and, and the news is just so tiny, with these books, it's the opposite. So like you flip one page in 1971, for example, and the Manson family is convicted. Ali loses his first match to Frazier. Louis Armstrong and Igor Stravinsky die. A bomb destroys a bathroom in the Senate and six other rooms in the Senate, which I didn't even – I thought all the bombings Puerto in the Rican, Senate happened Puerto in the Rican 19th Nationals? century. Puerto Rican no, I think it was a um, uh, the guy who called Cubans? up on a Saturday was about Laos, our our policy really? in Laos. Yeah, and there's all, I mean, so um, what else? Amtrak was launched that year. There's a great there's a great article about the the bumpy launch of of um, Amtrak, and then of course the fight over the Pentagon Papers. So pay, you turn page page after page, and it's like big events, and it's just a nice antidote to our. To our current um, news, and then there are all these fun little like little sidebars and notes that are contained also in the book. There were these two boys who there's a picture of two boys lying down on the lake in Central Park. It's frozen, and a helicopter descending because they couldn't get the kids off the ice except for by helicopter. You can imagine if that happened today, like the cable would melt showing this happening, right? You know. Anyway, so like I just that's really cool. But the great my favorite part about it is it's written in this style. Which is not the Associated Press style you would know, you'd feel like today, which is kind of like just the facts, ma'am. It's a little I don't know. It's just this quaint little style. So I'm going to read two little passages. One is from the Super Bowl, the um, Colts over the Cowboys. When the Baltimore Colts trooped out to begin the second half of the 1971 Super Bowl, they trailed 13-6, and middle linebacker Mike Curtis was in a towering rage, reflected by a mouth moving infinitely faster than the Colts' offense. I was yelling at everybody, the guy they call the animal recalled. I used every four-letter word I could think of and some I invented. Our team was so uptight I couldn't believe it. If you can't gut it out for 60 minutes, you don't deserve to be in the game. It's just like that's a great – I don't know. I like that. That's a great lead. My other final one is um, they were lonely men. Their free hours when they had them were spent sitting in the skid row sections of small towns, drinking wine in doorways, sleeping on the sidewalks, dreaming of relatives and friends far away. When the season was good, these drifting farm laborers from as far east as Atlanta, Georgia, toiled in the fertile fields of California valleys, picking peaches, prunes, tomatoes, plums, whatever the soil produced. The nation became more aware of the lives of such men when a mass murder of 25 laborers was uncovered. Law officers were puzzled by the lack of any inquiries from the relatives or friends. So this is a story about 25 farm who, workers. Who did it? I've never heard of this This killing. is Juan Corona, who was accused of killing these 25 men and burying their bodies in the, in the farm fields. I've never heard of that. I haven't heard of this either. So you, they're all, it's full of this stuff where you think, like, wait a minute. How is that not, like, something that should be in my consciousness? There's this amazing event that happened, and there are all these hijackings. I mean, we knew there were hijackings. There were so many more hijackings than, than, than I remember. Um so anyway, it's just it's if you like history, it's a lovely they're they're uh, lovely to thumb through. Oh, also by the way, the the My Lai massacre um, uh, perpetrator was found guilty that year too. So anyway, all right, Annie Lowry, what is your chatter? 
So my chatter is about a court case that was uh, brought to my attention by the ACLU's blog. And it was a sex discrimination case in which a woman was basically encouraged to resign, so effectively fired from her job um, because she was nursing or pumping in the office. And the court finding, part of the court's finding was that this was not sex discrimination because men also can and do lactate, which was something that... It, it turns out to be true, and there are men who do lactate, including trans men, but nevertheless, it seems that it is also orthogonal to the issue of the fact that this poor woman shouldn't have been harassed into firing because they wouldn't accommodate her. Was it a her. federal court judge that found that men... Was that a, was no, this is, a, this is a state court. No, yeah. And l- let's guess the state. Yeah. I'm guessing the state Wait. is... Uh, Trial court. Let me make sure. I'm not a lawyer, so I want to make sure. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess three. I'm going to get three states... <laughs> Alabama's going to be one, Arkansas is going to be two, and it's going to be Missouri's going to be three. Let's see. A trial court decision in Ames versus Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company. Hold on. I'll find out the state here. But anyway, I, I, I mean, this is, on the one hand, just kind of a hilarious headline. And on the other hand, I just it's, it's so amazing to me. And I feel like there's now this very active national conversation about just how horrible it is to be a young parent, man or woman. Uh, is there the now going to be like a backlash against men who don't breastfeed their children? <laughs> I, <laughs> I hope so. Because yeah. it, it did you, actually... John, did you, nurse, was, did you nurse your children? Well, of course, but that's because <laughs> I'm an evolved male. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I mean, Volo, it, are you nursing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it would be it would be so much better for everybody if men nursed. Like the workplace would be dramatically better if everybody had the same burden. Yeah. It would. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. All right, what state did you find? We'll find out the state. No, I'll do I need my to chatter. I need to download a PDF. I'll do my chatter. My okay. chatter is um my chatter's not very good. It's nowhere near as good as those chatters, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> the I'm so I'm now a, a CEO, which means I have to deal with all kinds of things, which I didn't expect to have to deal with of a small company. And one of the things I have to deal with is getting health insurance for my future employers, employees, excuse me. And it is absolutely ridiculous that companies have to do health insurance for their employees. It's so stupid. It it's makes funny you've no never expressed this opinion before. I just it makes no sense. Like the time I'm wasting on this, there's just no reason why the corporation should be the nexus between you and healthcare. It makes no sense. It is ludicrous that I'm spending time on this. It's ludicrous that my employees are going to have to go through this. That like the size of my company determines the rates that we're going. It is ridiculous, 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 ridiculous. What are your policies for breastfeeding men? Um, have you figured will, those we out yet? Because it. the problem is we don't have a room to nurse in because we have all we have is one big room. So if not having a private space could be problematic. Yeah, we may have to figure that to out. Nurse in the stairwell. Yeah, but I think this is this will be a very good thing if the ACA helps encourage this. Is just moving everybody onto a right. and, and yeah. No, in fact, no. I'm getting was, rid of yeah. The as deduction. I've been seeking funding for for this business, yeah. is one of the, I was having conversations with people who, and some of them were saying, you know. Soon you could do this without having to employ people, without having to uh, give people benefits because, you know, the ACA would be better. But it's not – we're not quite there yet. Sure. The people are still – Yeah. And it would not, also not be better there. because it would help uh, hold down health costs if people are absorbing more of the cost of, of health care and isn't coming to them as a benefit. Yeah. It's anyway. Huge huge objection. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Joel Myers, the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest with links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Twitter feed is at slate gabfest. Email address is gabfest at slate.com. And of course, you can subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes by searching for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. For John Dickerson and the favored guest, Annie Lowry of New York Magazine. Thanks for coming, Annie. We will be back with you next week, and I hope Emily will be back, but if she's not, who cares? We'll just have Annie back again. It doesn't matter. 